was. Well, right. hang on a second. I got to. I got to introduce. I got to do an okay. introduction here first. You know, okay. we're recording already. You'll be the first voice they hear. <laughs> Hello, welcome everybody. This is a new show. Uh, we're going to probably just put it out under the Players Podcast brand, but it's something special that was pitched by uh, today's guest as a project that we're going to work on together for as long as we're having fun talking. We'll get into the particulars of it. But uh, so I'm PTF here with you in the bunker. And then coming to us from a beautiful Lexington, Kentucky, we have horse player Sean Borman. Sean, what's going on? Uh, not much, man. How are you? I, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. A little, um, I, I'm not joking. I, I, I didn't know the meat sweats were like a real thing. But after eating about half a brisket, because various guests didn't show up at the Super Bowl party, I, I had the meat sweats last night. So I'm, I'm and... I don't know if you saw the picture, but I am uh, I'm one eyed at the moment too. I had a lovely. Was, oh, did you see that? I was going to ask you about the pirate look. Yeah, I didn't know if that was a joke or if no, they were it was not on a, a wrestling joke. thing or what. <laughs> this was, you know, it is a privilege to take care of an elderly dog, but it is also sometimes an incredible uh, pain in the butt. And uh, so Muggsy, the handicapping Labrador, famous on these airwaves for many years, though she doesn't sit alongside nearly as much. She's never fully recovered from from leaving uh, DRF all those years ago, but uh, she occasionally appears for the shows. Um, but, you know, she's a little uh, she's arthritic. Right. And so I got home from dinner the other night and she was like struggling a little bit. So I, I went to lift her up you know, lift up her behind and, you know, just orient her correctly. And I was still wearing the shoes I had on at dinner on the slippery floor. Basically, I fell on my face. And very, very lucky that I hit my eye where I did. I hit, like, I hit on my eyebrow, like, the above my eyebrow. So not super sensitive skin like the eyebrow itself and a very strong bone. So I don't even think I it was a concussion. But my face, I mean, it was rocky at the end of the first movie. I mean, it was like it swollen, started out as like a giant goose egg. And then it was to a point where, I mean, for the first 24 hours, I couldn't. I mean, it was just swollen shut. And now it's turning 17 shades of purple. And it's just, I cannot go out in the world with this thing. I, it, the eye is now open again. And I could technically see, I'm seeing fine. But like, I just, I can't be that guy out in the world with the half his face is purple. So I'm going with the Nick Fury look. I've got the duster. I've got the eye patch, and I, I'm, you know, the, the, the quoting lines from Avengers movies around the house. That's how we're that's how we're dealing with that. I understand you had no picnic either uh, over the weekend. I did not. No, I, uh, I was coming off my first uh, official COVID stint and finally tested negative on Thursday morning, and was you know able to get get rid of the mask and you know see the girls again and start start helping around the house and then within hours we get a call from the three-year-old school that she is puking everywhere so i go pick her up and you know get her through get her through her little episode then of course the next night me and the nine-year-old are just deathly ill for 10 hours um, oh no that is not so good saturday saturday was rough and then of course my wife gets it saturday night she she wasn't nearly as sick as us but it was uh it was a fun weekend so it didn't, oh. uh, didn't make it for shots in on the on saturday night and finally was able to watch that super bowl last night to some to some extent but well, let's start yeah, there. Was, uh, really, super fun 
You really surprised me by by saying that though. You were like, I want to really talk about the Super Bowl. I was like, Yeah, that's great. I I I, I love that. Did you did you have a gambling interest in the game, or was this just something you were watching as a long time? This, this is just purely a, a stupid observation, um, not gambling related at all. But I, I, you know that Super Bowl from sort of pregame through the finish to me was like every flair match from my childhood at Starcade when he was defending the title. I mean, it was just, you know, you start with the, the pregame ridiculously long overproduced intros, you know, that was just flair sauntering in the ring, twirling, twirling around a few times in his robe, styling a profile and handing it to the valet, pulling his knee pads up. And you're finally like, Jesus, can we start the fucking match already? Like, come on. <clears throat> and then you get the, you know, in my mind, the Eagles were sort of like, like stinger, you know, they were <laughs> up and coming. They've beaten a bunch of people, but you don't really know if any of those people were any good. They finally get their title shot. You know, the Chiefs are flair. They sort of cheated at the end of the last game to get to this spot. And got that bullshit call to get there. And and then Sting just dominates the first half, just kicking his ass, you know. And Flair's, you know, begging off and climbing to the top rope saying, no, 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 no. And, and then he gets hurt and he's limping around. And you're like, oh, you can almost just hear JR in the background. Like, oh, this may be it for the, for the nature boy. And then he makes his comeback. He hulks up like Hogan did. And, and you know, he, he makes the comeback. And then they get the lead. And then, you know, Sting makes his comeback. And they march down the field. They tie the game. You, and, then, and then Flair's got that one last rally. And, oh, it looks like it's going to come up just a little short maybe. And then you get that holding call that was just classic. J.J. Dillon, like, hitting somebody with a loaded boot or Arnold <laughs> Tully coming in and just hand it to Flair, and that's it. Oh, you know, my no God. chance for anybody to come back now. That's just the, the whole thing was just like every Saturday Night's Made event or Stargate final. It was just classic completely, completely ridiculous. <laughs> that's great. And it's funny, you bring up some serious football points along the way that, you know, that was always the thing about the Eagles to me, uh, especially the vaunted Eagles defense, which I don't know if they just got unlucky. I'm tempted to say we're exposed in the second half. And the question was, they've been earning all these accolades. And, you know, I'm a Giants fan, NFC East fan. They've been earning these accolades against mediocre competition. This is a, a whole nother level. And they had and they had no answer in that, in that second half. I mean, I get it. I get the Philly fans. And you're right. That was a loaded boot holding call. I didn't love it. But, like, it's hard to whine too much when you did they stop them on even one possession in the second half? I don't think so. No, not one. They scored every time they had the ball. So, I mean, you know, I get it. It sucks. The holding call sucks, but, or like there, you know, or the, yeah, the holding call sucks, but it's not, it's not something I think you can, you can get too obsessed with when I, I think there were some larger issues that at play, but that was a brilliant analysis. We don't talk enough for wrestling on these airwaves. If nothing else, maybe your, uh, you know, what are hopefully going to become regular appearances are going to help us to do that. Oh, well, I'd love to talk more pro wrestling. Yeah. The, the old stuff. I don't know anything about the new stuff. The old stuff. <laughs> You're missing some good – it's not a bad era to be a fan. I mean, if you – Yeah, I've heard that. I just I never have time to get it on anymore. That's the problem. It, it, 
it's and and I don't watch as much as any you know I used to watch every every televised hour of the stuff and obviously these days it's more you know about uh checking in when I can and then I always go to see AEW live see my guys Chris and Mox uh, do their thing they're all but it's you would let me put it this way you would like it all right let's get to what we're doing here and what uh what the idea of this show was just to give a little bit of background. Sean, obviously a regular member of our team. He does the pro player roundtables, and I've pitched him and we'll, we'll see if this comes to fruition or not on maybe doing more of those round y type things uh, ahead of big events. But you had an idea to do something that as far as I'm concerned, I don't think has ever been done in any kind of gambling podcast. Maybe there's something in the world of sports, but I can't recall anything in in the world of racing like with the idea you mentioned to me the other day how how has the idea evolved how would you describe it to the audience well you know my thought was really to just do sort of a a real-time diary of my sort of journey as a professional horse player and just as a as a person because it all just sort of melds into one i mean like what we talked about earlier you know having COVID and then getting the stomach thing and, you know, all that, you know, basically prevented me from working for a couple of weeks really with any effectiveness at all. So, you know, it's all sort of the same journey, I would say. And, yeah. you know, just to, to just sort of give a, you know, inside look into at least the way I approach being a professional player and, and get sort of into the nuts and bolts of, my decision making good and bad most of it'll be bad um <laughs> because that's just sort of the nature of things i mean i you know i'm the way i bet and the way i play and always have is you know i have a lot more losing bets than winning bets and a lot more losing days than winning days but you know eventually i i find a way to come out on top at least so far um so that was the basic idea and, and honestly you know part of it was just sort of a selfish idea because i I've been struggling of late and, you know, it helps me to, it helps me to talk things through. Um, and, and I'm not really a journaler or a writer, so I don't, you know, writing things down isn't my, my thing, but talking them out is, is helpful. So that's part of it too. It's, it's just to, to help, to help me continue on and, and fix some of the issues I'm going through. I think that extra level of accountability and just the the thought process, it's got to, I feel like it's the kind of thing that uh, can't hurt and might help. Let's put it, let's put it that way. And I'm thrilled that you're willing to give us this, this inside look, because, you know, as we all know, it ain't always going to be uh, pretty, but uh, to, in terms of these, these things that happen, the frustrations that come up when you're trying to construct a life. I mean, in my times that I was betting for a significant part of my living, was probably a three to four year span, like early 2010s. And it's just, it's, it's just incredibly stressful, like in terms of trying to make life decisions that other people make. And, and maybe that's a, maybe that's a place to start. Like how, as a professional player, how committed are you to having to make a certain amount of money every month? Or do you just do you just put that, those ideas aside? I mean, like, do, do you guys have a family budget and how do you factor your income into, you know, bill paying and things like that? Um, it's not set month by month really, but there, you know, there, 
I've got some leeway to where we can live off my wife's salary for, for the most part. Um, but there comes a point to where that, that isn't sustainable. So like every, you know, three months I've got to, I've got to cash enough tickets to get some money in the bank, say, um, no. just to, to, to survive. So, and that was a long time, you know, building to that point. It, it you know, it sort of started off on this journey when, when we got married that, that it was, you know, Keanu was still in law school. So, it, you know, I, I provided most of the monthly income then. And we had far fewer bills, thankfully. Right. Um, but, and then it just sort of morphed to where she's become a kick-ass attorney and, and, you know, makes really good money. And, and I get to not have to feel as much pressure as I used to, but it's still not a, you know, not a sustainable model if I don't produce eventually. So, yeah, I mean, I, all of that goes into, you know, every decision I make when I'm sitting down here in this damn basement gambling, you know, that's always in the back of your mind is, you know, the school tuition is due or, you know, car payments are due, and you know, whatever. Um, we want to go on vacation. JK's getting married on the Amalfi Coast. We got to go to that, you know, all, all this shit. <laughs> um, it's always it's always in the back of your mind. It is for me. I, I don't know how to separate the two. Do you? But you must have a separate. I assume you must have a separate bankroll for gambling, as opposed, and then you just like contribute it across the the barrier to the family money, right? I, yes and no. Um, I mean, yes, I have a separate bankroll. I have a separate sort of business checking account that I keep, you know, I try to keep everything as separated as possible. But I mean, if I'm being completely honest with myself and, and with anybody that chooses to listen to this, you know, if push comes to shove, you know, my bankroll basically is whatever money we have in the bank in any account and whatever money I can get my hands on through borrowing or, or, or whatever. I mean, cause that's, you know, you you the I don't know when we'll release this honestly, but the the conversation you had with Mike last week about you know drawdowns and and that was was one really really good, um, but two you know you brought up a point about like is it a detriment to have sort of wiggled out of tough spots in the past? Can that be? Can that give you a false sense of security? And that to me is absolutely true that, you know, the fact that, that I've been, you know, to the brink before and, and pulled myself out multiple times, you know, gives me the confidence to say, you know, every penny we have, whether it's designated for gambling or not, is my bankroll. That's probably not right. Um, but it's reality. Right. Um, so, you know, yes, I have separate, separate funds and 99 and of the time keep it that way but it hasn't always been the case i mean there was a time years ago now i mean this was probably 2006 2007 maybe i want to say we got married in 2007 so i think it was like the fall when we got married honestly um i'd been on like a six month losing streak and back then you know, my bankroll was whatever cash vouchers I had, um, whatever money was in my bank account and whatever I had, like a credit card, like an actual credit card that I could take a cash advance off of at like 22 percent. 
<laughs> and I'd lost all my vouchers and the bank account was low. And I mean, I'm not saying that I would ever like zero out my bank account, but like it was low enough to where I needed to tap that credit card. And I just got, it was actually during the live meet at Keeneland. So like the, the best part of, you know, my year, usually I'm sitting there and, you know, like how Mike was explaining that he, you know, dropped his limit down to some unfathomable amount on a daily basis once. Like I had gotten to where like I wasn't betting for like a week. Like I just would sit there and just wait. And then, you know, if I found something I really, really liked, I'd bet like a hundred bucks. Right. And that went on for, you know, a couple of weeks. And then, you know, I got to where like, you know, I just, I didn't even think about making a bet until I knew the odds were in my favor and there was something that I really liked. And this was back when they had the, it was like the beginning of the super high fives and they were not the jackpot thing. They were just like an actual daily, you know, you could get a decent carryover going in those things. And there was like a pretty decent sized carryover at Hawthorne. And, you know, there was like a Thursday or a Friday. And this is back when Mike and I were working together, talking every day. And there was one day, I think there was like a Thursday afternoon, maybe, or evening. And we sort of liked that sequence. And so, but, you know, we talked to, talked it over the day before. And, and so I went and borrowed like 2000 bucks off that credit card. And I think we, you know, we split a ticket in that thing. And, you know, I may have bet 400 bucks, maybe something like that. And we broke even that day. We hit it, but didn't, you know, didn't hit it right. And I got that money back. And then we played it the next day, hit it decent that day. And maybe, you know, I'm sort of ballparking, but maybe bet another 400, got back like 2000, something like that. Okay. Um, found a race that weekend at Keeneland. I loved, um, bet like 200 bucks early in the day and missed. And then the race I loved was the last race. It's a route race. I want to say it was poly track era. Crushed it. Bet like 400 bucks, got back 22,000 and then went on a run. And then, Within a week, I had seventy-five thousand dollars in cash vouchers, <laughs> and you know that's a fun story. And it, you know, it was awesome to you know be on the brink and, and pull myself back. Wouldn't advise it for yeah. anybody. I mean, it was stupid. You know, you don't you don't want to get yourself in a spot where you're borrowing at twenty-two percent to fucking bet the horses. Um, but you know, that, that's sort of the life. You know, I mean. That's that's the way it works sometimes. At least I it said, does for me. I mean, I'm I not. You know, Mike, I said this to Mike in that same conversation, but like, I feel like the powers that you guys had then, I just don't know that you can command the same kind of power in these markets when they're so dominated by, you know, it sounds like a broken record over here, but, you know, super smart. Um, betters betting with advantages that you don't have. You know, I, I just, I wouldn't. 
I be- totally believe I, I would have bet on you to make the comeback in in 07. <laughs> in 23, trying to fly that, uh, trying to, to, to fly through that very narrow corridor. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that would be the way to do it. How how has that changed for you, especially now when, you know, you said you're not you're not dealing with uh, the best run of luck you've ever had? No, I think you're exactly right. I think, you know, now I would never let myself even get remotely close to that spot. Um, you know, back then, you know, you, you were able to bet five or six days a week pretty confidently. Um, there was an edge, you know, on some of these Monday and Tuesday tracks, you know, you could you could bet Beulah Park in the winter on Monday and Tuesdays and have a good edge. You could bet, you know, uh, Philly back then or Suffolk back then. I mean, there there was you know you could legitimately operate seven days a week if you wanted to. Um, I usually stuck to Wednesday through Sunday and then used Monday and Tuesday to you know make figures and, and just have a little weekend, but there was just more opportunities, one more opportunities to get in a long losing streak and get yourself in trouble, but more opportunities to get out of it too. And more opportunities to, to sit there and, and, and wait for the perfect spot. Um, and you could find, you know, to me back then, you could find that spot at a lot of different places. Whereas now everything seems so watered down and the edges are so small that it's just much harder to, to even find those opportunities. And, you know, there was another relatively similar, you know, not, not nearly that extreme losing streak, but I remember another losing streak I was on where I basically ended the losing streak and got back, you know, everything I'd lost for the whole year in one super high five bet at Golden Gate. Um, those opportunities were there. Now those opportunities, you know, they've made those pools, you know, so efficient they've taken the minimums from a dollar to 50 cents on most of them and they're just cater to the crw so much that those opportunities don't exist to to make that kind of score um so it's you know it's much harder but because it's much harder like i've been on a terrible streak for two months but i'm like nowhere near being out of bankroll or anything it's just a longer sort of waiting game now do you do you still use the limit concept? And I don't I don't think we went into that in too much depth with Mike, so I wouldn't mind you explaining, you know, some of the safeguards that you have to keep you from getting into those those worst spots. And obviously, you know, your life is so different now, having kids, and you know, it just makes sense that you. And I assume this is what you've done is just put more and more safeguards in to to preserve capital and keep you out of those those worst possible spots. Yeah, you know, I tried it. I, I was never great about the limit, um, mainly because, you know, you, you do this long enough, especially back when, you know, Mike first introduced me to, like, how he uses limits and, and stuff like that. You know, you, you're out there at the track every day, and you know, you've got friends all around. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's very easy to just find money to bet, you know, so like, I would do things like, yeah, I'm gonna, you know, I'm going bad, I'm gonna set my limit, I'm gonna, I'm only, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take my 
you know, $5,000 voucher I've got, I'm going to break it into $500 vouchers and I'm going to take them all home and I'm just going to bring one a day. You know, that's my limit. Well, I mean, it was super fucking easy to lose that $500 and be like, Hey, Maloney, let me, can I borrow, can I borrow 200? I want to bet this race at river down. But he'd be like, yeah, sure. Here's 200 bucks. And then I'll pay you back tomorrow. So it's like, you know, they, they were, they weren't hard limits in my opinion. I mean, both of us sort of, you know, it was very easy to, to set a limit and not have an actual limit. Um, but when push comes to shove, you better stick to that damn limit at at some point. Eventually you've got to, you know, do what Mike was talking about and get down, get down to your limit and get down, put on your belly and find the best bet you possibly find before you do it. Um, so, yeah, I, I had, you know, weekly, sort of monthly, weekly, and daily limits, you know, sort of mapped out. I would sit down at the beginning of the year, and depending on how I was going into that calendar year, I would just sort of map out the game plan for January, February. These are my limits. You know, this is how I get from this limit to the next limit, up or down, and just sort of map it all out and, and try to stick to it as, as best as possible. Um, was it ever like years really in. mathematical? Were you looking at it in terms of here's my overall bankroll and I'm, I'll am be willing to risk, you know, 2% on a given weekend or like, like did, did, was there anything to it or was it more of a process of feel? It was a little bit of both, honestly. It was, you know, like I said, the limits weren't hard and fast. So it was, it was mathematical to begin with, but then it was feel, you know, if I'm, say operating on a two thousand dollar weekly limit and it's saturday afternoon and i'm at 1800 but this is a great bet and i need to you know i need to bet five or six hundred dollars into it then i'm going to bet five or six hundred dollars because you can't you know the the one thing you can't do especially now but even back then is you you can't you can't not crush their souls as jk says you know if, <laughs> if you're right You've got to be right, and you've got to make a pay when you're right. Um, so, you know, you know, you don't want to say like, you know, I'm within ten percent of my limit. I'm going to bet four times my limit just in this one bet. You don't want to do that. But if it's, you know, if you're just talking a few, you know, an extra day of losses, maybe or, or two days, maybe if it's a great opportunity, then maybe you, you should probably do that. Um, Nowadays, you know, back then I was more apt to still want to bet every day, to find something every day to bet on. Now I'm not. Now I'm, you know, betting mainly just, well, I'm betting exclusively Hong Kong right now. I'm only betting two days a week anyway. So it's pretty easy to say, well, I don't like anything on this Happy Valley card and I'm going bad. I'll just skip it and then I'll wait for Saturday. Um, but back then I wanted to try to do something every day. For, you know, one, there was opportunities. And two, like you just, you sort of learn stuff. And you look, I think you learn more by having even just a little action on things, you know. I agree with that. You you could pick up more, you pay a little more attention to the races if you got some money on it. You pick up on more jockey tendencies or trainer stuff if you're, you know, if you've got a little more money on it. It's just a learning thing. I mean, it, it's, you know, I was once asked by, uh, not so friend of the pod, pick three boy. Who, you know, one of the, one of those guys once uh, once asked me, 
when we were at Keeneland, he said, well, are you going to bet anything? And he was talking about the key. He was the live me. And he said, you know, he said, are you going to bet anything? I said, yeah, I'm going to go bet this 10 horse at Beulah. And he goes, well, why the hell would you go bet Beulah? <laughs> I was like, well, I mean, I thought he was, I thought he was just like, seriously, you know, like, what do you, what's the angle? So I was like, well, the rail's terrible. This horse is 20 to one. He's going to sit outside. Perfect trip. Blah, blah, blah. It's, it's a good, you know, it's a good bet. And so I go make the bet and I came back and then, you know, he said something else about like, well, what, I just don't, you know, what are you doing? Like, and then he I literally said to me, I only like to bet if I can win a million dollars. All right, buddy, you're not going to be betting that fucking often. I mean, I, you know, I don't know what you're, you know, what you're doing, but, but it was just like, you know, if it's not the Super Bowl or the Kentucky Derby, it's not good enough for me to bet on. Just like, Okay, you, you call yourself a horse player, but you're not. Uh, <laughs> That's very funny. But, you know, we would we would bet on tracks like that all the time, every day. You know, I saved an I saved an entire year of mine by crushing a race at Suffolk Downs on some like a random Tuesday afternoon in June. Um, bias related. Bias related. Strong ass rail. You know, I mean, like strong to where the races were coming like two, one, three or three, two, four. You didn't have to do any handicapping. It was just like, who's going to make the lead? Who's going to sit in the pocket? That's your exactly. And it was like the fourth race of the day. And we were, Mike and I were sitting there and it was just like so obvious um, that you just had to start betting this day at Suffolk. And, you know, I'm, recouped an entire six months of losses lead into that day and I think two bets at Suffolk Downs. But, you know, I didn't win a million dollars, so maybe I was fucking stupid. I don't know. <laughs> Could tell you're not really too interested in the the dilettantes in this game. You have more more respect for the the Warriors, the ones out there, the ones out there uh, doing it doing it all the doing it all the time and you know, do with a little bit more respect for the old school. I, 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 feel uh, I think I think that would be accurate. Yes, the <laughs> the, the, the tournament pretty boys. Uh, you, know, you including JK in this? Uh, who who? who? <laughs> the wedding in no, the JK's, JK is a player. JK bets almost everything. Yes, and JK doesn't JK doesn't front like he's a professional gambler. He will say that he isn't and gives props to to those that are a lot more than some people i'll say um, <laughs> i love i love where we're going already in these uh in these in these conversations but uh, the side question that pops up to me right away is why is it that it doesn't seem like the opportunities from bias are there to the degree that they once were. What does that, am I right in that? And what does that have to do with, do you think? Um, yeah, I, I certainly think you're right. And I think just sort of generally over time, the severity of biases has lessened. I think, you know, I think track maintenance and the understanding of how to maintain these tracks and deal with weather and 
stuff has probably improved. I think the general knowledge of bias throughout the horse playing community has certainly improved. I mean, I remember when I first started betting that, I mean, bias was sort of a controversial thing. I mean, smart horse players didn't believe in bias and thought it was bullshit. Um, but it was certainly true. You know, there were times and there were surfaces that dictated results back then. I don't necessarily think it's that way now. Um, and I think the opportunity when it is that way now is less just because everybody knows about it. I mean, right. I, you know, I think I've actually said this on these airways at some point in the past, but there was a time, there was a day maybe, it's been a while now, this may be six or seven, eight years ago, maybe. Um, but a friend of mine is just a completely casual $2 better. And, you know, unfortunately probably isn't even that anymore, but, you know, love to just, play you know play the races on a very small level um but he texted me one day can you believe how bad this rail is at indiana miles <laughs> twitter's you know it's all over twitter <laughs> what do you think about her and i remember you know i responded but i remember thinking to myself after the fact you know this is the end of bias like bias is dead <laughs> if it's if it's seeping into that level of player and and that and it's in it's on Twitter, like on a random Tuesday at Indiana Downs. Yeah. It's just not a factor anymore because it's priced in. Right. So right. I just think you know, all of those things have just made bias less prevalent and less important in my mind. And I almost don't factor it in at all when I bet in the US races anymore. That's um, interesting. For those reasons, I, you know, over time, I just sort of have built this sort of handicapping hierarchy in my head. And the things that would always, you know, trump other things. So, like, to me, like pace and pace and speed figures are, are, are more important than bias and more important than trips. And, like, you start seeing these things over and over and over again. Like, you know, this terrible trip horse, but he was a little light on figures, but oh, well, he was light on figures because he had this awful trip. Well, you know, those horses will invariably just run back to that figure. So then I started realizing, okay, well, the figures are maybe a little more important than the trips. And then the bias thing, the same thing, like, oh, this horse was had a perfect trip last time on a gold rail, you know, like always dreaming comes to mind. You can't bet that horse because of the bias. I'm quoted there today. Okay, but he was the fastest horse and had great lace pace and was going to get loose. And you know what? He won the fucking Kentucky Derby, <laughs> bias or no bias. I mean, it's just ultimately figures kept winning out all these little sort of internal arguments. And so it just got to the point where, like, these pools have gotten so efficient. And why spend the mental energy dealing with all this other shit when I can just have a good set of figures? I feel like I could compete that way. So I just sort of don't factor that stuff in nearly as much. I mean, I want to know about it sometimes. I and mean, sometimes with bias, actually, I don't even really want to know about it anymore. But like trips, I think are still pretty important, especially, you know, I like to compare trips to like not 
oh, this was a bad trip. The horse got checked, but like this horse was just sort of out of position based on his pace profile. To me, that's a much worse trip than actually encountering trouble. But, um, you know, I just sort of developed this this hierarchy and the figures always came out on top of all these little arguments. So, uh, you know, I just sort of don't even play bias anymore. It is interesting though, when thinking back to those slump busting stories that, that, uh, bias was, a was, was a factor in a, in a couple well, of them. Oh, they were. And, and, and it, you know, bias was huge back then. Um, but here's a great example of bias and, and, Tell me what you think about this. There was a day, and this, I, I, I don't think Mike would care if I tell this story, but there was a day back in the back of the day when we were playing the aqueduct enter track at the dead of winter, and it was just a golden rail from hell. I mean, just like, like the one at Suffolk Downs I was describing. It was just ones and twos were winning every race, loose speed, totally out. And Mike made one of the better bets I've ever seen anybody make. He played like a, I mean, he spent like $96 on a late pick four ticket. This was pre-pick five, I think. It was a late pick four and, you know, singled some, some loose speed horses that were huge prices, just playing the bias. And I'm pretty sure he cashed for six figures. I think he swept the right pick for a pool. And one, those biases don't exist anymore. But two, there is no chance in hell that thing pays one ticket nowadays. Right. I mean, it probably, you know, it, no chance. It, it paid, it paid a hundred thousand, say. I mean, it might pay 10 now because the bias was so obvious and more you know that that it's just so watered down I, that that's just not even possible anymore. but well, I think, you know back then you know it, that was just a pure bias play and a, and a value play i mean he just saw the he saw the opportunity with these these horses they were big morning lines and, and you know probably obscure trainers i don't remember all the all the details but it was just, it was just a great bet and huge value but nowadays, like you're not going to get the value because of the bias anymore, um, and the bet's going to be more watered down. It was probably that was probably back before it was a fifty cent minimum too. It was like a dollar minimum, where it was harder to cover. But that's oh, fa it's fascinating to think about that world versus the one we're in now, which I think points to why you have decided. Now it does sound like you're going to be looking at um, some USA stuff around the Keeneland meet and around uh, some of the the Triple Crown preps. But I, I mean, when was the last bet in the USA that you made, and how focused on Hong Kong are you relative to to the USA? Um, I honestly, I think the last bet I made was that fucking BCBC bet on Breeders' Cup Day. <laughs> wow. Wow. I think it was. I don't think I've bet a U.S. race since then. We talked about this on the, the, the recap show, but for those that don't know, if Taba finishes second in that race, it is Sean, who is the ITM uh, team member, who uh, gets <laughs> the accolades of, of BCBC champion and not uh, Drew Coatney. You guys may have 
you may have done the exacta, but you would have definitely had more. Um, so that's the racing question. That's that's interesting. So, I mean, it's it's just off the radar, except for the biggest events is what it sounds like. Uh, yeah, completely. And it's, you know, it's now I'm I'm not even making figures right now um, for the U.S. I might start back up, um, but I'm, you know, that's sort of iffy. I'm having enough trouble keeping up with my Hong Kong stuff with just my day-to-day life right now. So, I, you know, I, it's it's really it's so not on my radar like i forget to load my stuff into the into my site you know 75 percent of the time it's i just don't even i don't even really think about it which is you know part you know it, it makes me sad to some extent because of course a lot of most of my adult life has been spent watching these races and, and focusing on it and now i honestly just don't even care about it Right. Well, it's, it's, it's hard when, when the edge goes away and you're trying to make money, I mean, what are you going to do with all that extra work just for sentiment? No, that doesn't make sense. It makes sense to focus on big days and it makes sense to ply your trade elsewhere. And we've talked about the advantages of Hong Kong from a better's point of view, but maybe it's a good idea for you to summarize some of what what's over there that allows you to ply your trade, even if it's only two days a week, that, that's better than dealing with what we have here for you. Well, you know, a lot of it, you know, a big chunk of, of my decision to do this was sort of lifestyle oriented versus like my edge oriented. Oh, interesting. I, mean, I, you know, it's an opportunity to work less but still make the same amount of money. And I think most people would sign up for that. Yeah. And it's, you know, I don't love you know, staying up all night on Saturday nights to, to bet those races. I mean, it's, it sort of sucks, but I do love not sitting in front of TVs all day on Saturday afternoon and not being with my girls, you know, yeah. being able to go to basketball games and stuff and just, you know, do things with my children. If I have to stay up all night to, you know, to work, then it's totally worth it. Um, and it's, you know, so a lot of it was that, but it is a much better product. Um, I think there's much more of an edge over there once you get into it and sort of learn the, learn the circuit. There's certainly more liquidity. I mean, it, what they've bet over there lately is just just ridiculous. Um, you know, they bet they bet two hundred sixty three million US like on the on the Chinese New Year card a couple of weeks ago. They bet two hundred seven million last weekend just for a ten race card. You know, not even like a huge day. It was just a day. Um, you know, they're. It's just it's it's really it's really ridiculous how much the betting um, and the opportunities. I mean, the betting menu is not great. I mean, it's it's fine. It's it's the betting menu. If you actually live in Hong Kong and can have a, a Hong Kong Jockey Club account, I think is tremendous. They have some very interesting bets, but we don't get access to them. Um, but you know, you get win place 
Quinella's Quinella place, which is, you know, I forget what we call it. The Omni is maybe what yep. we called it in this country. Yep. Winger um, or Omni, two of the Swinger three. and the Omni, yeah, two of the three, you know, two of the top three in any order. Um, you get a re- actual regular exacta. You get a, a trifecta. Um, you get one pick three a day, but they handle 600,000 in that pool. So you can really score out that pick three if you hit it well and, and come up with some contrarian opinions. Um, we can play the six up, which, you know, I think is maybe the best bet on the planet. Um, so, I mean, the betting menu is, is, somewhat limited in terms of the bets you can make but it's so liquid you know from just a pure churn standpoint i mean you could churn tons of money in like the swinger you could bet any amount you want without hurting your odds so if it's a you know if you can get access to to any kind of rebate in those pools there's they're just so deep that you can just really take advantage of the churn. And they, how how much of your business model is churn and rebate these days versus trying to have an ROI on a dollar per dollar basis? It's it's very. I'm very. Um, I'm not very focused on churn right now. Um, one because I've been going bad and I just don't want to expose myself to much risk. And two, um. I'm sort of starting to struggle with my bet construction and my sort of decision making, which will obviously lead to downturns and profitability. Um, but it's, you know, I'm having a, you know, it's just difficult to, to be up at four in the morning or three in the morning and, and for me to make optimum decisions all the time. So, you know, what I find myself doing is, you know, the bets like the six up and the pick three that I can sort of plan in advance and and really hone in on how I'm playing those, I do that. But the race to race stuff that I was, you know, better at 10 years ago, I'm sort of just doing kill bets. You know, like most of my exactas are straight exactas or, you know, just two-way exactas and the tries are sort of the same thing. I'm, I'm picking the horse I like to win and playing like two or three underneath them. Um, nothing super complicated, but that does hurt churn quite a bit. Um, but it sounds like but, that's just decision based on where you are in your, in your profile right now. It is. I mean, it's, you know, it took me a while to sort of realize that I'm just not as, you know, frankly, I'm just not as good as I used to be. I'm not as good at constructing tickets. I don't have the sort of mental ability to, to grind on them as much as I, as much as I used to and, and want to. And, and, and part of it is probably not betting day to day. Like I used to, right. um, only betting two days a week will, you know, sort of dull your abilities. Um, but recognizing that I've altered the way I play and, you know, there's, that can be good and bad. I mean, it, it leads to, when I do score, I really score now. I have, you know, much bigger upside because I'm just absolutely cold cocking things. But it does lengthen out drawdowns because I'm only betting two days a week and, you know, you're playing 
you know, straight exact as in the 14 horse fields, you're not going to hit any of those all that often. Right. Um, so it's, you know, it's been a, it's been a pretty big adjustment, honestly. Um, but lifestyle wise, it, it's much better and I'm much happier and gambling wise, you know, it's very frustrating at times to, to have a lot of near misses and um, sort of deal with the drawdown stuff for, for longer periods. But, you know, I also know it's only, you know, you're only one exact away over there from really doing, you know, it's like the old days here. Like, I, you know, like those bets I made back then, I think you could, you know, you could easily cash 50,000 out of the exact pool in Hong Kong and you're always right with the world. So, um, <laughs> There's so many, so many follow-ups that I have. One is it occurs to me and just through having these recent conversations with both Mike and Maury that maybe you'd want to take some percentage of, and maybe you're already doing this, but take some percentage of, of your, your bankroll, what you're looking to play in a night and get it even more simple and, and look to, you know, a double win bet or a, or a win place bet or, or just, you know, if you know the, if the value is there and the pools are that liquid, just to doing doing some sort of strategy to try to, with some of the money to try to increase the strike rate a, a little bit, um, if the opportunity is good enough. Is that something you've done or, or that you'd consider doing, or, or is it not a good idea for some reason? I'm not thinking of. No, I think it is. Uh, I've done it to some extent. Um, you know, it's I make a lot more win bets than I used to. Um, so that you know, I think just in general, I've sort of simplified the bets I'm making. Um, I do wish that, you know, I, I really wish that I could make like an actual parlay, like put it into the tote as a parlay. And I could very easily do like a manual parlay and just bet each horse. You know, if I had the discipline to, to, to actually do it as a real parlay and parlay all the money, um, I could I could certainly do that, but I wish I could just put it into the tote as a parlay and say I want to bet a two hundred dollar parlay on these three horses, because um, that's something you know that's something they could do over there with one of their bet types that just it's, it's so fascinating. I mean, they can like sort of make synthetic parlays in any pool. I mean, you could say I want to bet the two horse in the second to win. I want to bet the four horse in the fourth to place. I want to bet the you know, one, two, three, try box in this eighth race. And then I want to bet the 10 horse in the last one. And that's all one bet parlayed all on top of each other. And you could just put that in, you know, it's just a fascinating idea to me. You could really just create any scenario you want to. Um, we used to have those parlay cards here that you could do in the whips. I haven't seen one in years though. I I think you can still I, I think you can still bet an actual parlay in California maybe, um, on like Express Bet. I, I might not. I mean, I haven't logged into Express Bet in a while, so I'm not totally sure. But I think as of not that long ago, I'm pretty sure you can still bet an actual parlay. I but, remember I remember having a conversation years ago. Maybe the first time I like ever really paid attention to them with uh, it was a. a bit of a bit of a busted jocks agent who was one of the guys who hung around the clubhouse with me and Frank Scatoni 20 odd years ago in uh, at Saratoga and he loved 
he would do everything on the cards. And I just asked him one time, like, well, why don't you just like, why don't you just do it manually? And he's like, man, because once again, when it runs up and you get to that 800, I'm not sure I'm going to have the for that last leg. I'm not sure I'm going to have the guts to just go up to the window and bet. So he loved the he loved the parlay card. I assume for you, it's mainly a question of you could potentially do that and go to bed. You, you don't have to stay up and watch it if you if you if you don't have to do the manual parlay. Well, yeah, but I mean, part of what he's saying is true too. I mean, you you know, it goes back to the whole tuck rule with Mike. Like you you know, let's say you hit the first three legs of your two hundred dollar parlay and you're up five grand. It's awfully tempting just to tuck four of it and say, I'm going to have a real good day and I'm going to bet a thousand on this horse. And then you, you know, that horse wins and you've cost yourself a huge score um, by taking the, taking the sort of manual part out of it. You can't do that. You just risk your 200. And if you hit it, you hit it. You don't, you don't, but you know, it's, it's an interesting thought. Like how many, you know, if we could sell pick six tickets after five legs back to the track for a certain amount, you know, how many people would do that? I think a lot of people probably would. I think a lot of people you know? would, you know, if it wasn't um, an insulting price, you know, I think a lot of, yeah. people, maybe even if I it think wasn't. A, I think, I think, I think a lot of people would, if it was an insulting price, I mean, <laughs> you know, if you've, if you've played a hundred dollar ticket or whatever, and, and you could score for 10,000, but they'll give you a thousand right now without running that last leg. And you're a little iffy on your horse. I bet a lot of people take that thousand dollars. It makes sense. I mean, we'd have stats on it on the sports gambling side because they do that, those cash outs yep. all the time. Um, so we, uh, there's info out there about like just the general gambler's psychology on it. <laughs> it's, yeah. It is fascinating. I mean, it's, you know, it's, and I'm generally, you know, I'm a fairly risk averse person. I mean, I, you know, I do this for a living and I, you know, I'm not afraid to make a big bet, but I don't, fucking love it either you know i'm not like looking to make five and ten thousand dollar win bets all the time just because i have to you know i'd much rather bet a hundred and get back a thousand than than you know bet a thousand to get back 1200 on a sure thing that's just not my mentality so i'm just knowing that about myself like if i did run up a parlay i'm not 100% sure I'd do it right at the end. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, One other Hong Kong question that I, I want to get out of the way, because we've been talking about computers and how hard they've made life for the USA horse player, being the birthplace of computers, the place where, you know, Hunter wanted to run his experiment. Um, are the computers a problem for you in these pools, or is there just so much money that it, you, you can actually coexist? I, I think... I mean, the computers are a problem everywhere. Um, you know, certainly the pools would be less efficient than they are without the computer teams um, anywhere in any pool, I think, in the in the U.S. football market, in the golf market. You know, there's computer teams and they're making these markets more efficient. But I think the thing about Hong Kong is there's the percentage of the overall handle in my opinion, is less computer money in Hong Kong than it is here in the States. That makes sense. And I think there's, I think there's some structural reasons for that. Um, I think there's some cultural reasons, you know, I think just having the, 
sort of monopoly on all gambling over there. And, the, you know, there's a lot of retail accounts. I heard the CEO of the Jockey Club was on a podcast during COVID right when I first got, you know, got interested in all this. And they were asking him how they were dealing with, you know, not allowing fans to the tracks. And he just, you know, he was explaining some of the protocols they were going through. But he, he also said that they have like over 700,000 retail betting accounts, online accounts. And I heard that and I was just like, Jesus, like that's that's a lot of just dumb money sitting at home betting these races. I mean, that's oh, yeah. not, you know, that's not computer teams. That's just, you know, people. Um, and so that that's that comment alone really piqued my interest. And yeah. then when you just start paying attention and start learning sort of the, the horses and, and the way they bet over there, they, they are still very um driven by visuals you know a very impressive visual winner um will almost always get bet the next time no matter how fast they ran um hot trainers and jockeys you know the you know zach perton just he's you know in my opinion probably the best jockey in the world and deserves to get bet but he just monopolizes those pools man he just everything he rides is you know they're starting to call it the zach tax you just got to pay it because he just gets he just gets pounded. Um, so that, that leaves some opportunities, you know, a little edge there. If you can, you know, find some horses that he's not riding, um, you know, you know, the, the parlay thing I was talking about, um, they call it the all up and, you know, they will actually tell you on their broadcast, you know, going into whatever race, if there's, if there's, if the odds are affected by significant money being rolled up in those bets on a Could certain combination, they'll tell you that pre-race. They'll say like these betting combinations are affected by significant all-up bets. Interesting. And you know, most of those all-ups, you can sort of tell are like you know somebody put a big bet that Perton is going to win six races, or you know it's just or a trainer is going to win like three or four races or it's not necessarily like handicapping. It's right. just like other shit. And so like that can give you a little edge when, when situations like that roll up. So there's, to me, there's just a little less smart money in those pools and the liquidity dulls it even more. Um, and the late, the way that they deal with late money is just so much better. How do they do it there? Do. Well, they they have a color coded system on their their tote board to where if a combination or a horse gets you know bet by gets bet down by twenty percent, it'll flash green. If it gets bet by fifty percent, which I mean in those pools is a significant amount of money, um, it'll flash brown, and the and the and the commentators. You know they'll tell you that they they'll they'll mention it on air. They they do more routine check ins on the odds, I think, than than we do. Um, they'll tell you which combinations are, are heavily bet in those all ups, how the odds have moved, what combinations are coming in late, and a lot of times it's you know uh, a three hundred to one. 
Quinella will get bet down to 150 to one, and it's you know just a pretty obvious computer team correcting a small inefficiency. Um, and it's really nothing that affects me. Like those things, you know, that's their business and that's how they do it, but it doesn't really affect me at all. The, you know, every now and then you'll get like a, you know, 20 to one horse, get bet late, get, you know, get brown lamp, they'll call it and he'll go off at nine to one and he'll draw off and win. And it was obviously, you know, a, a pretty smart, you know, somebody knew something, right? Um, but they tell you leading into it, like you, you know, it's done come in one flash, you know, when he's been cut to 20% and then when he gets cut to 50%, they'll, they'll tell you. And then, you know, sometimes it just comes late enough to where you don't, you don't know. And it's just, it just happens, but it doesn't happen every race and it doesn't happen every day. And it's just a much better product to gamble on. In my opinion. Speaking of that, there was a great example the other day of a horse that you singled that didn't run. Do you know the story I'm referring to? I do. Tell tell that story. I think people want to know that. And then I want to spend the last few minutes today talking about sort of where you are in your current journey and and the the and just sort of set up uh, where where we're at and and you know what your week looks like for gambling and 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 then we'll we'll get we'll get out of here in about fifteen. I think. No, okay. sounds good. Um, yeah, so I, I played the six up um, last Wednesday at Happy Valley. It was a very, I didn't love the sequence, but I saw sort of two horses I thought could be value singles. Um, I, honestly, I played a very small ticket. It, it wasn't even really close. So this, you know, this, this horse running poorly didn't affect me at all. But one of my horses, you know, he was, I don't know, 12 or 14 to one and, and had the best figures, but sort of had a goofy jockey and a, not a great post, but not a terrible post, but the jock sort of didn't, wasn't really as aggressive early as I wanted him to be. And he got in a bad spot and, you know, it was obvious sort of going around the turn. It was, I believe it was a six for a long sprint. Um, it was just obvious going around the turn. The horse wasn't going to do anything, but then he, basically pulled up and they hit the top of the lane he had nothing and it was basically eased so you know in my mind i was like well you know i was wrong but i also like that horse something physical was going on because he you know he wasn't going to run that bad because he was three wide he just you know something something was going on and you know that happens in this country you know there's 50% chance you never see the horse again or never hear about it again. You just don't know what happened or it comes back and drops wildly in class and you have no idea if it's fit or if it's hurt, if it's bled, if it, you know, whatever. Um, so over there, they give you these nice detailed reports at the end of each race and the horse bled for both nostrils. Um, then the jock pulled it up and now I know that going forward. So I can come right back and bet that horse. You know, he's going to have to go through a barrier trial probably and not bleed. But you have a lot more confidence when that horse comes back that he's gone through the proper, you know, protocols to get back to the races and be sound and be fit and be ready to go. You can bet that horse next time 
a little a little more confidently than you could in this country. For sure. And here's another example. There was a horse that ran um, at Sha Tin Sunday morning. And I bet this horse the last time it ran, it was sort of the same thing. It was like a 46 to one shot that I thought had a shot. And he ran 14th beating 40. And I was just like, Jesus, that, you know, something obviously happened to that horse. And he comes back Saturday and, you know, the vet report. And I put this, you know, I had when I had my Hong Kong past performances designed, I included all this vet stuff that they give you. So like right there in my PPs, it said, you know, irregular heartbeat after that race. He came back with a bad heartbeat. He had a couple of barrier trials since then. There's no way they're going to let him run if he doesn't pass those. He's back in, you know, Sunday night or Sunday morning. And he's 46 to 1 again. And gets a pretty good trip and, and runs fourth beating a half a length. <laughs> but, you know, being able to see that and being able to see that he's come back and trialed against oh. pretty good horses and done it well and knowing that he's not, you know, hurt or just completely finished as a horse, you know, you could bet that horse again. Whereas here, you just don't have any idea what's going on with these horses really. It's a guess. You know, it's a complete guess, and then and they're you know just making it worse with the LASIK stuff. Now it's now our highest profile races are a complete guessing game with the LASIK switches on and off. We just don't have any idea. But it's you know Hong Kong is showing it is not that difficult to keep these records. Like it would be more difficult here. Sure, there's a lot more horses, a lot more tracks, but it's not an impossibility, and it should be done. Like we should be able to look in the form and see. So and so bled last time, not on Lasix. Yeah. Today they're on Lasix. They're not in the state race. That would be so much better. Yes. You said something really interesting I wanted to pick up on when you were talking about a 14 to 1 shot that had the best figures in the field. I think a lot of USA fans said, What? when you said that. Is that because your figure was different than the published figure? Or explain explain how that works with the ability to make a bet on a horse just on a high figure and how much you doing your own figures is adding to that potential advantage. Yeah. Well, I should have really should have touched on this when we were talking about the, some of the other um, aspects of, of Hong Kong racing, but yeah, they, they, there are probably some figures out there, um, but it's not a figure dominated. Um, Culture. Jurisdiction. You know, there there aren't like four different figures you can see for each horse published. If you know, they they do sectionals, and they talk they they talk about sectionals during the running of the race and all the time. And you know, this horse was, you know, this segment was below par. This one was above par, and all that. But there's a big difference between raw time sectionals and actual figures. Yes. And they don't. You know, I just think I've. I've got a pretty good edge with the figures that I'm making over there and that not a lot of people use figures. Um, and I, you know, the ones that, that do like the, you know, like the handicapping sort of pyramid I talked about earlier, what, what trumps what, you know, they will still, they over bet and under bet post position in my opinion. 
um, jockeys, trainers, visuals, they don't price that stuff right. So like there are all the time, there are top figure horses that will draw a bad post and they'll, they'll let them go off at 10 or 12 to one or sometimes even higher, you know, because they're in a shitty post. But the figures went out most of the time. So, you know, you just got to bet those horses. And it took me a little while to figure that out. But, you know, there was a day at Happy Valley last season. I had a horse probably three lengths clear on figures, just clearly the fastest horse was, you know, had tactical speed, you know, wasn't one of these like deep closing turf horses, was a, you know, tactical sprinter, had the best figures in the race. Was in the far, you know, the 12 pole at Happy Valley, which is not good. But he won easily at 14, 14 or 15 to 1, 16 to 1, I think. And it, the, and it wasn't, you know, like some weird, obscure jockey and trainer. It was, they just, the post, they, they underbet that post. And they let that horse go off too, too big a price, way too big a price. Um, so that's a huge, you know, I do think the the figures do do give me quite a big edge. I mean that that horse I let you guys know about that was running in the um, four year old the first leg of their triple crown what, what two weeks ago I guess. Yeah. Um, I think he went off at twenty three to one and and had clearly the best figures. <laughs> and his and he had the best figures and did it tough like he was wide and he had no trip at all and had the best figure and ran a good second at twenty three to one. Um, now I of course fucked that, that up and didn't cash a didn't cash a ticket. And, uh, it was sort of a brutal night, um, yeah, but you know the opportunity was certainly there. Well, that sounds like the, the the key the key of what's been going on lately is you know your info's good, you know the edge is there, you haven't been cashing nearly as many tickets as you want to. What's the plan for this week? I mean, how much? Will you consciously come up with an idea for, okay, here's how I'm going to turn this around. And then what is your, what does your work week just look like? I think that that might be a good place to end off. I didn't ask you about the specific specifics of last week. Cause I'm guessing between your two illnesses, you didn't make any, uh, any, many or any bets. No, I just, I played that one six up um, Wednesday morning and, and that was about it. I didn't do anything Saturday night. So, um, but, you know, just in general, um, yeah, my, my gambling has been, you know, pretty good opinions, pretty bad execution and and bad uh, losses. Um, and then coming out of the COVID thing and, you know, I'm a little behind in my info. So, you know, really my goal this week is to get my information caught up and you know, try to find like one or two good bets at Happy Valley Wednesday if I can. And then sort of do the same for the shot 10 card this weekend and then get back to sort of a full-time more of a full-time schedule next week because i'm I mean, i'm just behind and i'm sort of exhausted too that makes perfect sense to go easy on yourself a little bit when you're not feeling 100 percent is only logical again no matter what your profession well, you know what let's dive into that 21 to 24 to one shot that ran a good second and, and you didn't cash. How did you play that one? And how, with the benefit of hindsight, should you have played it? Well, so I, um, I played a good six up ticket that night. Um, and I just cold singled him. 
um, and I'll get to that in a minute. I singled him in the pick three. And then in the race, I made the big win bet, probably the biggest win bet I've made in years. Um, well, biggest non-contest win bet, I guess, I've made in years. Um, and then I played him first and second with, I want to say, three other sort of price horses in the exacta. Um, they they were betting. They really, you know, it's one of those races where they there, there was a there was a prep for this race that was like dreadfully slow. I mean, you know, these horses. You know, the horse I was betting was running like hundred figures, and you know, the horses they were betting were coming out of a race that went in like a like a mid eighty with you know just like this terribly slow pace. But the thing about that prep race was they didn't finish fast enough to, to give me any confidence that that was a good race. So, like, the best horses coming out of there were just still running the same late pace figures they had run when they were running 10 lengths faster early than they did in that race. So I knew those were not, you know, I knew those were bad favorites. And so I just sort of, I just sort of, you know, chose three other price horses I thought had a good chance. and and made you know but the, the bulk of my play was the win bet um but then i probably bet 30 percent of my money in that race in the exactus um to really and i was really going to score if i was right i mean these exactors were paying you know 150 200 to one some of them and then i just you know the horse that beat me uh was a in hindsight just i i just fucked it up you know he was he was a contender he was probably the most likely horse to make the lead um which he did and he was you know improving a little bit i just i wasn't sure he was going to improve enough and he just beat me he was just a bad you know i knew going around the turn i was like oh, this horse he's probably He's going to snap me. I just, I knew I wasn't going to hit the exact. I knew this horse that was on the lead was either going to beat me outright or run second. So I was just hoping my horse would win so I could still be live in all the picks and, and get the win bet. But he, he couldn't get there. He got beat by like half length. Ugh. Um, you know, but, you know, back to the six up. So the six up. Oh, and we should explain is, that bet very briefly for those that not everyone listening is going to know how the six up works. And it is a great right. bet. So the six up is basically a place pick six with a bonus if you pick all six winners. So if you go, if you run second six times in a row, you will cash a ticket. It's just a small ticket. If you win all six, you get to share the winner's bonus. Um, and then if you run first and second, in a race, you get the consolation two times. So I I had run, I believe I had run first and second in the first four legs of this thing. Um, and then still got this 23 to one shot to run second with another price horse. So I was still like, I got I took that bad beat in the six up, but I was still alive for like 24 consolations, I think going into the last leg and then 
of course I take a brutal beat for second. I, I wasn't, I didn't, I had two horses and neither one of them, they ran third and fourth, I think or maybe <laughs> third and fifth, but I lost the, I lost that photo too. That's um, so gross. And I think it, you know, that was probably like a 25 or $30,000 photo. Um, but yeah, the six up is a, it's a, it's a tremendous way to structure a pick six in my opinion, because it gives you that, if you really like a horse, you can just single it and you don't even have to think twice about it. You know, you don't, you're your own backup. You're your own backup. You've got your own backup. Exactly. Yeah. It's brilliant. Um, We we pushed for it a little bit here and we, you know, one day maybe we'll get it across the line. I love it. Not not surprising. They didn't listen, Um, (laughs) but yeah, it's, it's a great bet. And then, you know, they, they do that kind of sort of backup thing in, in their pick three, two in the last leg of the pick three, if you run second, um, you cash the console. Um, and, you know, a lot of the things they do are designed for churn. You know, it, it helps it helps churn and it helps people maintain some of their bankroll, even when they're not 100 percent right. And I know it's, you know, a hidden takeout increase and blah, 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 blah. But, man, you know, the best example I can give is the is the six up I hit last year when i you know i took that brutal beat for over a million dollars in one of those things but i hit the constellation and got back forty thousand. right that's not too bad man that's no you know and it's not i don't really buy the hidden takeout thing because the the if you cash the big one, you're also going to be getting consos almost all yes, the time. You are. So I, yeah. I don't really, I don't really have a ton. Look, I don't. At the same time, there's instances where I'd rather them carry a pick five than pay it out to, to four or five. So in that sense, I'm not saying I'm always in favor, but I think if you use this structure correctly, it can be a tremendous benefit to the player. Yeah, and the, the you know the other thing about the six up that I find fascinating is they've sort of figured out how to take the traditional pick six and the jackpot bullshit pick six and meld it into one singular thing because you can bet the six up over there in like dime increments or the equivalent of dime increments. But the difference is you are not eligible for the jackpot if you hit it on that increment, you have to hit it on the big increment. So instead of sort of catering that bet to the computer teams, like we have over here and making it to where you can only have the winning, you know, to, to you only get the winning ticket if you have the only ticket and then making that impossible by making it a dime increment and making it so efficient, they don't let you get the only winning ticket. You know, there are instances over there where they'll pay out, you know, half a million dollars and then still have a half a million dollar carryover because right. whoever hit it was on the dime increment and not the big increment. I mean, that it's a cool bet. We'll talk about it more as you're in your adventures of playing it, but I'm going to hold your feet to the fire back on the question about the, the long shot that ran second. So your mistake was simply, you should have played, you should have included the, that horse in, in your exactas. There wasn't, there wasn't a better or different way to approach that structurally uh, with a, you know, some sort of weighted all exact, uh, some sort of place. You know, in hindsight, from a handicapping standpoint, I certainly should have 
included that horse because he was the most likely leader. Um, he was talented enough to win. Um, I, I I can't really quibble with the way I I played the race, honestly, because like my opinion was that this horse was the fastest horse, and he he did it tough, and that he was clearly the best horse. So I mean, I bet probably. I bet, you know, like I said, I think I bet 70% of my money in that race on him to win. Um, and then the, the other 30% in exact is back and forth. I mean, maybe I should have, maybe I should have, you know, tried to include more horses and, and done the exact of that way. But I think this was more of a handicapping mistake than a, than a betting mistake, really. Um, but, you know, a mistake is a mistake. I mean, that was an opportunity to make a tremendous amount of money and really correct a lot of wrongs that I had accumulated over the last two months. And I just accumulated more. So whether it was handicapping or betting doesn't really matter in the, in the grand scheme of things. But it, no, it's fair. It, it, I, that was one where I don't think I messed the bet up as much as I have some of the ones leading into that one, honestly, I mean, there's been plenty that I've screwed up. Um, and that was we wouldn't even be talking about the exacta uh, if the six up had come in too, you know, like, and there was a photo lost there. So I, I think you're right. wise to not overcorrect for the last mistake and say something like, Oh no, I, <coughs> I didn't bet the place. Or, you know, if that's not your, if that's not your personality, if you're, if you're dulling the edge uh, if you're dulling your edge by the watered down return of a place bet there, like it's not something you should do. You know, it's, it's like you said, you probably should have handicapped it a little bit differently, but it's, it's hard to call that one a betting mistake. Yeah. But you know, this is a good sort of segue into, into the conversation we had earlier about just my ability to, to bet. Um, and to, you know, so if, word this properly you know if i i'm well in hindsight i was sitting down here that was the night i you know had my first covid symptoms so i wasn't feeling great anyway and it was about four in the morning when i was making these bets but <laughs> so that was an instance where built-in excuse you know, not a great one but it is it was it was occurring um you know that was an instance where like I just don't have the the mental fortitude anymore to like look at the betting board. I mean, it's a 14 horse field. So there's a lot going on when you're looking at an exact grid or Quinella grid or whatever. Like there's, there's a lot to process there. Right. And, you know, I, if I would have just like sort of thrown out the horses, I didn't think had any chance and then thrown the two favorites out just, because they were sort of slow underlays and then written down the, you know, exact probables of everything that was left and then just done the math on, you know, if I play this every way it can come, key my horse with all these, you know, say it was six horses left or whatever. If I do that and I'm still getting 10 to one on this play or whatever, you know, maybe I do that a little differently and maybe I, I, I make that bet 
Um, but I just don't have the, I, I just don't have the, you know, stamina to do that shit right now. Right. Well, um, it's, 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 but, it's easy. You know, I'm, I'm sort of working on a side project that, that, that might make that more of a reality. You know, I, I think I've talked to you about, you know, trying to get a sort of a wagering tool built that could let you sort of take those probables, upload them into a, basically a wagering calculator. And you could say, uh, you know, I want to use this horse first and second with these horses. What's my total return? And then, you know, if you could even like factor the rebate in that you're getting and, and spit out to say like, you know, you dutch these combinations, you're going to get four to one. You know, if you can safely get four to one a lot of the time, you're going to make a hell of a lot of money. You can turn a hell of a lot of money. Um, but I just don't have the, I'm just not good at doing that right now manually. So, you know, in that regard, I guess I did sort of screw the, screw the race up, but like, you know, I may, I bet probably, I think I bet $1,100 into that race something like that, maybe 1200. And if the horse just wins, I'm going to get back over 20,000. If he wins and I hit the exact, I'm going to get back probably 40. If he just runs second to a horse I used, I'm going to get back 10 or 15. So like, I don't really think risk reward wise, I, I made that bad of a bet, but you know, from a, from a sort of a churn draw a rebate standpoint, it probably was a shitty bet. If that makes sense. Yeah, well, it's this is the kind of stuff I think we're going to want to be talking about and just looking at going forward. I think I've kept you for long enough for today for this uh, debut of what I think is going to be a fun voyage and hopefully one where we get to watch you turn this uh, thing around in real time. Um, doesn't sound like you'll be doing a ton this week, but I think we should you know consider checking in maybe for a shorter episode next week and get more into just the nitty gritty of of what you saw and how you played it and and how you ended up doing was this was this helpful to you did it deliver on the the promise that you thought the idea had yeah no it's very helpful to me i, I really enjoyed it actually i hope uh, i hope it becomes a regular regular thing and i will i will try my best to start looking at some u.s stuff that people would actually give a shit about what we call yeah. so um, <laughs> especially derby derby stuff i'll, I'll definitely try to get a little more involved there and that'd be great to, i mean i honestly don't even know who's on the derby trail right now i, I don't i know Duquesne just got hurt but i don't know who the leader is or who should win or i don't know any of these horses so i need it's to get tr- something going it's a tricky one and i do remember from years ago you know you had that hiatus for a couple of years and when you first started getting back into it when we were talking you weren't fully up and running with your own figures and you were making a lot of noise with the with the the brist data back then which looks at the world similarly so even if you don't get fully into the point of figure making i think you'd have a lot to offer for the for the people with um just looking at the commercially available stuff not that i wouldn't prefer you to have your own stuff it's obviously better but you know if it's if it's a bridge too far it's a bridge too far you know part of this is you know coming up with a lifestyle that that makes sense and that that allows you to do all the things that you want to do which obviously includes spending time with family which doesn't go hand in hand with making uh, figures for every track in the country <laughs> no it does. you know i'm i'm right on the brink of of taking tommy's route and you know i'm i'm one big score away from retirement at this point i just uh, <laughs> that I, could I be the story of the, these podcasts i don't have the love that i used to i'm afraid but maybe we can rekindle it 
I love it. Well, if any any way we can help. Really appreciate you, Sean. Love this idea. Love talking to you today. And uh, I'm going to pop this up as a show today and I'll say we go for another one next week. What do you think? I'd love to. Thanks, man. For Sean Borman, I'm Peter Thomas Fornital. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. Nick and I will be back with a traditional recap um, show tomorrow. I, I say that without having talked to Nick, but he's usually available for it. Later in the week, we'll be covering the uh, Coast to Coast bets once again. That should be a lot of fun. Got to get on the right side of one of these sooner rather than later. But uh, that's a topic. That is a topic for another show. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. Our business manager is Drew Cotney. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. I'm Peter Thomas Fornatel. May you win all your photos.